We've been in Romans chapter 12 now for uh, several weeks, and um, I just want to read the verses for us once again, just to bring us all up into the text. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is, uh, what is good and acceptable and perfect. <clears throat> We're calling this little mini-series here the transforming power of the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel. And last week we began this, and, and we probably won't finish it up today because we have communion, but... Um, We'll spend about the the messages in in July are going to be a little bit shorter because we have the children in here. So I'm I'm trying to watch the clock. So, um, but we want to continue this that God expects. The first week we looked at sacrifice. The gospel expects sacrifice. It's not something that's optional for the believer. And with all the health and wealth going on today in, in the name of Christ you would find that message um, nowhere almost within the church. A lot of people don't hear the message of the gospel that it will cost you, that it will require you to sacrifice each and every day as you follow Christ. Jesus himself said it best when he said, you can follow me, but first, what? Deny yourself. Take up your cross, then you can follow me. The cross is an instrument of death. So we're called to, as believers, to die to ourselves each and every day. And yet, this thing we call Christianity and the Christian life is rewarding, but it's also kind of frustrating because you never, ever acquire it. You're always becoming more like Christ, more like the Savior. You never finally reach it where you're like, okay, now I'm just like Jesus. I can just kick back and relax. That never happens until that day when he returns or we go to be with him, when we will be in a state of glory in his presence. What a wonderful day that will be. But we're constantly trying to fight against the flesh and fight against sin and the world and and the devil and everything that bats against our Christian growth each and every day. And some of us desire to change more and become more and more like Christ. But you know what? It's hard. I don't know if you find this or not, but change is not easy. Change is something that's difficult for everybody. And depending on your background, depending on how you were raised, because we're not all raised the same way. Some of us come from Christian families. Some of us come from uh, non-Christian families. Some of us grew up in a hard, very difficult childhood. Others were blessed with loving parents and a wonderful family. So we're not all on the same field with this. But when we look to change and becoming more and more like Christ, it almost at times seems like it's unattainable (laughs) because our flesh reminds us each and every day how much we are not like Christ. But here in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, 
Paul really begins to give us the key to lasting change in the Christian life. And last week we began to look at this and we said here that chapter or verse 2 contains two commands. The first one is negative. Do not be conformed to this world. And the second command is a positive one. It says, Paul says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So you have two commands here, one negative, one positive. Last week, we looked at the negative one. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. We talked about that word conformed, and we get the word schematic from it or scheme. And what it says is is stop trying to pretend like you're part of the world. Don't be conformed to this world system. The way of thinking. It has the idea of masquerading. Trying to be somebody you're not. See, if you're in Christ, that is not who you are, beloved. You do not belong to this world. You belong to Christ. Your home is not here. It's in glory. And so one day we will be swept out of this place. And we will be presented in the presence of Christ and our creator. And you know what? Then we will be home. But until then, everything is just transitory. Everything is just temporary. We need to be reminded of that. And so he says, do not make yourself like this world system. And we looked at a couple of verses, Galatians 1, 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that talks about that. But that's not an easy thing to do. We also looked at what does it mean to be part of this world? What is this world system about? And we looked at four things. We looked at secularism, which is the cosmos and all that's in it. We looked at humanism, that the idea that somehow you will be like God. And also we looked at relativism, which is basically there's no morals. Everything's just kind of wishy-washy and it doesn't matter. There's no truth. And then we looked at the idea of materialism. And what Paul is saying is don't be like any of those. Be like Christ. Be transformed. Don't be conformed. Be transformed. And we talked about a little bit about that word transformed. It means metamorphosis. It means changing from one thing into another. Like a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. And so the positive command that we want to look at today is, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. Now, last week we said that word, be conformed, is in the passive imperative. And that means don't let something else do this to you. Don't let the world pack you into its mold. Resist it. But here he says, be transformed. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, We all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being, listen, transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, just as from the Lord the Spirit. See, we, we want outward change so much, but that doesn't come without inward change. There's so many people in our churches today that come to church, they sit in a pew or they sit in a chair and and they listen to a message and they think, wow, okay, this is Christianity. No, it's not. There's many people who will be sitting in chairs and pews in churches but are 
quickly on their way to hell because they don't know the Savior. They never came to a point in time in their life where they were willing to renounce their sin and, and announce their dependence upon Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And just because you're in a church on a Sunday doesn't make you a Christian any more than it makes you a hamburger by going to in and out It just doesn't work that way. So it says here that we should be transformed to change from one form to another. Well, how does this happen? He says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Before we get to the outline, I just want to speak a little bit about this idea of our mind. Because it's so important for the Christian to understand that everything starts right up here in the noggin. Everything starts in our brain. You know, you've heard the term garbage in, garbage out. Same thing. What you put into your mind is what you're going to see lived out in your life. The transformed mind, the mind that is transformed, is the believer that is transformed by God's power. This isn't something you can do on your own. You can't go to bed at night and put the Bible under your pillow hoping somehow it absorbs into your brain. It won't work. So when we look at this idea of having a transformed mind, the Bible is very clear and it says the believer must undergo a radical change within the inner being in order to escape the world and its doom. The believer must be transformed and changed inwardly. His real self, his real nature, his essence, his personality, his inner being, his inner man, all that must be changed. Well, how is this change possible? Well, the Bible declares it right here. By the renewing of your mind. The believer's mind is to be renewed. That word means to be made new, to be readjusted, to be changed, to be turned around. To be regenerated is another word. Well, why do you think that is needed? Because the mind of man has been affected by sin. All you have to do is pick up a paper, turn on the news, go out in the neighborhood. You'll see sin everywhere. The mind is far from perfect. It's basically fallen. It's worldly. It's sinful. By that I mean it's selfish. It's centered on this world. It's self-centered. It's centered on the flesh. And it's even self-seeking. It's centered on this life. What you can get most out of this life. The scripture is very clear about the corruption of man's mind. And it's been made that way because of sin. In Romans chapter 1, I'll just give you these references. Don't try to turn there because we're going to go pretty quick here. Romans chapter 1 verse 21, it says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. What does that mean? It means man's mind became vain. It became empty. It became futile. Or in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, it says man's mind became reprobate. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to what? A reprobate mind to do those things which are not 
honoring to the Lord. Romans 8, verse 7, it tells us that the man's mind has become carnal and full of enmity against God because it says there the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. Romans 8, 7. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, man's mind has become blinded by Satan, lest they believe in the glorious gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul writes, In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine onto them. Remember that verse next time you're witnessing to an unsaved loved one. Or a neighbor. They're blind. They're spiritually blind. Don't tell them, well, you have to stop doing this and you have to do this and you have to go to church. And, and Don't tell them that stuff. That's not going to save them. There's a lot of people in the world that live morally very well lives, but they don't know Christ. And they're on their way to hell. See, what they need to understand is that we need to understand that they are blinded by Satan himself. And until God steps into their lives and transforms their mind, they will not believe the truth. They may embrace. They may tolerate it. But until God transforms their heart and their mind, they'll be lost. Or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, it tells us that man's mind became full of vanity, futility, and emptiness. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. He's talking to believers. Don't walk like the Gentiles. You're not part of them anymore. You're not part of this world system as a believer. You become a new creation in Christ Man's mind has become focused on earthly things. Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 to 19, says, For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now I even tell you weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, whose mind is on earthly things. Or Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul speaks of the mind. And he tells us that man's mind has become alienated from God, that it's an enemy to God. He says, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled. See, we were all there at one time. None of us were born knowing Christ. None of us were born without the taint of sin. All you have to do is be around a little baby very long. You'll realize really quick that they're a little sinner. If you don't believe me, ask Jason and Nikki. Well, maybe not their boy. No, <laughs> trust me. They can tell you. So man's mind has become even fleshly, he says in Colossians 2.18. He says, let no man beguile you. Of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into these things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. 
And even man's mind has become defiled. Titus 1.15 says, Unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. So the mind of man is reprobate. It's lost. It's sinful. But for the believer, those who come to Christ, those who are willing to bend their knee to Christ himself, the mind is renewed. It's renewed by the presence. It's renewed by the image of Christ in the life of the believer. When a believer receives Christ, when a person receives the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord, the man is spiritually born again, it says. That's why we say, have you been born again? You've also been made a new man, Ephesians, Colossians tells us. You're made into a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us. You're given the mind of Christ. Think about that for a second. When you come to Christ for salvation, he actually doesn't just take your mind and kind of, you know, do a little washing machine job on it and put it back. He gives you the mind of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16. 1 Corinthians 2.9-15. And we're also changed into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18. One of the verses, Romans 8.29, Bob read this morning. Well, this is an incredible truth that we should rejoice in. When a person receives Jesus Christ into their life, they receive the mind and the image of Christ as well. Christ places his mind into the believer's mind. That is, Christ changes the believer's mind to focus solely upon God. In addition, he stamps his image upon the person. Whereas the believer's mind and the image are used to be centered upon the world as a a non-believer, they are now centered upon spiritual matters. That doesn't mean we're perfect because we're still in a fallen body. We're still in a fallen world. We're still going to be tempted to sin. We're still going to give in to sin. But for the first time, when you come to Christ, you are freed from the shackles of sin. Before, you couldn't help but obey sin. You couldn't help but be in that place of darkness. But now you have a choice. Are you going to go back to the darkness? Are you going to stay in the light? Only Christ can implant the mind and image of Christ within a person. Only Christ can give his thoughts and his spirit to live out his thoughts through a person as a believer in Christ. And so the believer is to live a transformed life, a changed life. He's to walk day after day, renewing his mind more and more and more, more and more becoming like Christ. Like I said, you never get there. In this world, you will never get to the point in your Christian life where you say, okay, I don't need to do anything anymore because I'm perfect. It's not going to happen. But the believer is to love the Lord with all his mind. Matthew twenty two thirty seven: Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The believer is to keep his mind on spiritual things, not carnal things. Romans 8, 5, and 6. It says, For they that are after the flesh do do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is what? Is life. It's peace. Or in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, the believer is cast 
is to cast down imaginations and every thought that interrupts that knowledge of God that we're supposed to be focused on. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity what? Every thought to what? To the obedience of Christ. We can do that because we have the Spirit of God living within us. The believer is not to let their mind be corrupted. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. See, when you come to Christ, don't allow... Religion to corrupt that. Sometimes it's interesting when someone comes to Christ, it's almost like you want to protect them from the body of Christ (laughs) because they're a brand new believer. They don't know anything and they're just so fresh and they're so willing to go out and share their faith. They don't care what people think. And then they hang around church people for a little while and say, you know, you don't really do that. I mean, you don't want to tell somebody they're going to hell because of their sin. I mean, that's not really socially acceptable. You want to talk about the love of God. and The believer is also not to fulfill the desires of the flesh and mind. Ephesians 2, 3, among whom also we all had our conversation in the past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as others. What Paul's saying is we're no different now that we're Christians than anybody else other than Christ has transformed us. See, so many times when people come to Christ, all of a sudden they start feeling pretty good about themselves. They feel pretty self-righteous, and they feel like, well, these, these dirty people in the world, i got to keep my distance from them. Because they'll, they'll corrupt me somehow. And Paul's saying, no, you were one of them. Don't think too high and mighty of yourself. Or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, the believer is not to walk as the world walks. He says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk in the vanity of mind. Or Ephesians four twenty three, but be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Philippians 2.5 says that this mind, what? The mind of Christ, which is also in Christ Jesus, be in you. Or Philippians 4.8, we're to think upon things that are worthy of praise and virtue. He says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things were just, are pure, are lovely, are of good report, If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, what? Think on these things. Dwell on these things. Don't dwell on the other stuff. And the believer is to live by the laws of God, which God has put into his mind. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them into their hearts, and I will be them to them a God, and they will be unto me a people. Or First Peter chapter four verse one: the believers to arm themselves, for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself likewise. What with the same mind? 
For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So that brings us to this positive command. Be transformed because we know we need to be transformed. Well, quickly here, on the back of your outline, three things. Transformation is a lifelong work of God for which you are responsible. This isn't like some nighttime cream you put on your face and the wrinkles are miraculously gone in the morning. It doesn't work that way. It takes effort. The verb is in the passive voice indicating that it is a work that God does within us, this transformation. But it's also in the imperative mood. What that means, it indicates that we are not totally passive in the process. You have to cooperate. See, that's a mistake a lot of believers make when they begin familiar with theology and they begin to understand the sovereignty of God and and all that. And then they just say, oh, well, I guess I'll just step back and let God do his thing. He doesn't need me. Oh, yes, he does. doesn't need you, but he chooses to use you for his glory, for his purpose. We're responsible to discipline ourselves, 1 Timothy 4.7 says, for the purpose of godliness. That's kind of a regiment. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, Paul said this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, what does he tell him to do? Work out your salvation. How? With fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, you have to obey and work out the salvation that God has given to us. doesn't mean you're saved by works. We're not saying that. You're saved by grace. You're saved by faith. You're saved by the work of Christ. But he is also willing and he's working in and through us. I mean, there's some people that come to Christ and, you know, I've seen it. I mean, I've seen alcoholics come to Christ or, or people who are addicted to drugs come to Christ. And they come to Christ and, wow, you know what happens? Boom, they don't, they don't even desire another drink. They don't desire to put drugs into their veins. They don't desire anything. They're transformed. That happens to some people. It doesn't happen to the majority of people. Usually alcoholics and drug addicts, after they're saved, deal with alcoholism and drug addiction. Just like everybody else. That has that issue. So what do they need to do? It's a battle. They need to cooperate with God as he changes them from the inside out. And you learn to walk, not in the flesh, but by the spirit. And you see this progress and the transformation as his fruit is produced in us. Galatians 5. See, God doesn't change our personality. See, some people think, well, if I come to Christ, I'm going to be some whacked out nut job that's carrying a 50-pound King James Bible and preaching on the corner. No. Unless you were a nut job before, God's not going to allow you to be a nut job afterwards, to be honest with you. I mean, there are some Christians that are crazy. I mean, we all got a little bit of craziness in us, right? But see, he changes our heart. He changes our mind. He changes the sinful manifestations of our personality. 
I mean, think about Paul. Before he was converted, what was he? He was this hard driving, everything for the cause kind of guy. He went out and even killed Christians because he thought it was the right thing to do for his faith as a Jew, as a Pharisee. And after he got saved, what did he do? He was all out working for the Lord to the point of death. His personality really didn't change. I mean, he had fights with people. He had all kinds of issues going on in his life. But you know what? He was committed to being used by the Lord. It's a lifelong work that God has called us to. It's not a sprint. Secondly there, the means of this transformation is by the renewing of our minds. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've heard this. We act as we think. That's so true. All sin and all obedience begins in the mind. So the key to overcoming sin and to growing in godliness is to change your thinking. How you think about God is so important as a believer. That's why it's so important to be in a good Bible study, to be grounded in the doctrines of grace, to understand who this God is that saved you. I think a lot of problem with a lot of believers is they don't even, they understand that they were a sinner, they understand that they're saved, but they don't understand anything about the God that saved them. So then the enemy comes along and starts whispering in their ear, and they're just willing to believe it. God's not going to take care of you. Who do you think you are? Oh, look at that sin you just did. And pretty soon you're curled up in the corner and you feel like you're unworthy, you can't even come to church because you're ashamed. That's not who you are in Christ, beloved. You're a child of the, the Most High God. Your sins have been forgiven Past, present, future. You've a new creation in Christ. You don't need to listen to that garbage anymore. So how does this change take place? It takes place primarily by two two ways. Primary source is God's word. It's by bringing yourself under the authority of God's word. So many times, people want counsel. And some people, by counsel, they mean they want to come in and lay down on a couch and throw up all their stuff to you and then leave. And then come back the next week and do the same thing. And think somehow this is going to help them. (laughs) And when you say, stop, (laughs) we're not going to do this. Let me give you some biblical principles to live by. Well, I don't want that. (laughs) That's hard. Well, yeah, it is. But either you want help or you don't. And those principles come directly from God's word. I mean, it has to come out of your own idea of your propensity towards sin. I mean, even David, who was what? A man after God's own heart, the Bible says. After he had written many of the Psalms. What was he capable of? He was capable of adultery. He was capable of deception. He was incapable of murder. Are you sitting here this morning thinking, well, I'd never do that. My heart's immune to that. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Here's a verse for you to put on your refrigerator. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. See, that's the problem with so many people 
men primarily in the role of pastors. Their people put them on this spiritual pedestal and then everybody bows down and worships them like they're untouchable. The only difference here is I'm facing this way and you're facing that way. Okay? We're on the same level. We're in the same game together. I deal with the same sins you deal with day after day after day. And it's hard. It's difficult. But that's what God calls us to. To meditate on his word. How it applies to your life. Memorize the word of God. Put it into your heart. So when those temptations come, you can say, wait a minute. No, I don't have to listen to this. I'm going to do this instead because this is what God commands me to do. Secondary source for changing your thinking is not just the word of God, but it's also gifted teachers. It's even examples in God's word. People who have dealt with issues. I mean, one of the the most wonderful things that you could do for your children is either have them read or read to them some of the wonderful stories of men of the faith. People like George Mueller, John Calvin, John Bunyan, Jonathan Edwards, William Carey, Hudson Taylor, C.H. Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Those biographies make an impact on you because you know what? Biographies of these men's lives show everything. They show the good and the bad. A lot of these guys had major issues. A lot of them dealt with major depression. They were incredible preachers. I mean, everybody looked up to them. And yet, you read some of their lives, it's like, wow, they were a wreck. The third thing here, the result of transformation is that you will prove in practice in practice what God's good, acceptable, and perfect will is. What God's good, acceptable, and perfect will is. Now, whether you say this is the purpose or the result of this, it seems that Paul is describing, after your mind is transformed, here's what you're going to attest to. You're going to prove what the will of God is in your life. I mean, how many people here want to know the will of God for them? Most of us, right? If we're believers, we want to know what God's will is. And don't believe the lie that God saves you and then he takes his will and he hides it somewhere and he plays this, you know, weird game with you the rest of your Christian life. Like, hey, I got a will for you, but I'm never going to tell you what it is. All you got to do is pick up his word. It's on every page of scripture, his will for your life. Do the things that he commands you to do. And then you know what? Do whatever you want to do. Because my Bible says that God gives us the desires of our hearts. But it's only when those desires are subject to his word. You're to prove and practice what God's will is. It doesn't refer here the will of God to, you know, what college you're going to go to or, you know who you're going to marry, things like that. He's talking more about the moral will of God. The difference would be the moral will of God, it clearly says in the word of God that someone who is a Christian, someone who is a Christ follower, does not marry someone who is not. That would be what we call unequally yoked. You're joining yourself to someone who has no no comparison to you. 
That would be the the moral will. The other idea would be, well, does God want me to marry this Christian man or this Christian man or this Christian woman or that Christian woman? Is it Sue or Sally? I mean, those kind of things, that's something that God can give you wisdom to, but he doesn't speak about it in his word. This word prove here means to discern or approve by testing. To prove in practice. In other words, you're living out the will of God and you're seeing him affirm that in your life. So many times Christians come up and say, well, I don't know what to do. I, I want to serve, but I don't know what to do. Well, just start doing something. Just do something. God will lead you down that path. I mean, I've had people that, you know, hey, I want to work with youth. Okay, you know, great. And after two weeks, they're going, you know what? This is not my gift. I want to kill these kids. <laughs> You're right. It's not your gift. Let's try something else. You know, or they, they, they want to help in Sunday school. Or they want to help in the fellowship thing. They, you know, just do something. And then God will reveal to you his will concerning that. But see, if you're not doing anything, if you're stationary, God can't really help you with that. Because you're not cooperating with him. It also says here that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. Good refers to moral goodness, holiness, um, beneficial, bountiful, suitable. In other words, his will is good for you. Don't ever be afraid of God's will. Don't think that, you know, my biggest fear in Bible college was that God was going to send me to some place where I couldn't take showers every day. And, you know, like some missionary on some back jungle place and I'd have to deal with bugs. And, you know, it was just a big fear of mine. And I thought, wow, you know, and as I grew in my faith, I began to realize, well, you know what? There's nothing wrong with, I think God would give me the grace to deal with that. But just knowing my personality... You know, that's probably not the first choice on the list. So he says it's good, acceptable. He says it's acceptable primarily means it's acceptable or pleasing to God. Of course it is. It's his will. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 to 10, Paul says this, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Learning, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That word trying to learn is that same verb that we just translated prove. We're to prove in practice what pleases our God. And that happens over the long haul. And then the idea that God's will is perfect, it refers to his absolute moral perfection. We're never going to attain to that. This is what I said as I started off. But the word can also mean mature. The word can also mean complete. You grow in your maturity in Christ. Phillips translates that this way. God's proving God's will and practice moves you toward the goal of true maturity. See, our dilemma is that we hate change. We hate change, but we love it at the same time. We love it at the same time. What we want is for things to remain the same, but get better. You know, very real example, our daughter Crystal is dealing with this very thing right now. They don't know 
if they're going to be staying in Hawaii. They don't know what's going to, if they're going to be having to move. I mean, that's a pretty big change, especially when you've got two teenagers and a preteen in your house. And I, I love her answer. She just says, you know what? God knows what he's doing. <laughs> and it, it upsets me probably more than it upsets her because I don't like change. You know, I don't, I don't like to, you know, I drive the same way home, back to the church, go to the same coffee shop I've been going to for 20 years, sit in the same seat, you know, and when someone else is there, it bothers me. <laughs> I'll just be honest. But I'm gracious. And even the people that work there, you know, they're lovely people, Indian family. And one day, it was kind of full and my place was taken and I got there late and I was just frustrated, you know. I was like, oh, I should have got here earlier. I mean, over a stupid seat, right? I mean, but this is how your pastor thinks. So I got my coffee and I sat at this other table and and then it kind of cleared out. As soon as that seat was open, I got my stuff, moved over there. And the girl goes, you're really funny. I said, watch, because you just moved because you always tell, yes, that's who I am, you know. See, the good news of this is that, you know what, because of Christ, because of what he's done on our behalf, beloved, this change isn't just left up to us. That because Jesus died, because he was born, he raised, he, 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 he lived a perfect life, he died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the grave. Because of that truth, this change is not left up to us. This is something that God imposes on us. So we don't have to leave here worrying, well, I don't know if I'm changing it enough. Just cooperate with the God who saved you. Just get to know him better. Just take time to spend time in his word. To spend time with other believers. To spend time in church. All those things are good things. And those things will cause you to become more and more like Christ in this transformation process. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray for any hearts here who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. Lord, it's never too late. It's it's simple as, as crying out to the Lord to you, God, and saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's that, 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 that prayer is a very biblical prayer. It was prayed by an individual in the New Testament. It acknowledges your sin before God. It acknowledges God, Christ, as the Lord. It acknowledges his payment for our sin. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because that's one thing we all need. We need the mercy of God. We need the grace of God each and every day. If you're here this morning and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, you've yet to pray that prayer to God, I pray this morning would be your time. That God would draw your heart to himself. That he would do that miracle of transforming your heart and your mind into that which mirrors Christ. And for us believers, I just pray that as we come to this communion table here this morning, Lord, we're thankful for your love and your grace and everything you've done for us through Christ. And Lord, this table is open to all who know your Son as their personal Savior, that have acknowledged your sin before you and have tasted the goodness of that forgiveness that's only available through Christ. This juice and this cracker is not some holy element. It's just a symbol. It's just just bread without leaven and and grape juice. And it just represents the, the body and blood of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he was the one who instructed us to do this, to remember his sacrifice for us until he comes back.
And so we do it on the first Sunday of the month. And so, Lord, it's a time when we can examine our own hearts before you. If there's something we need to confess, if there's something that we need to kind of unload at the cross, now's the time to do it. Because there's a very stern warning about partaking of this table in a way that would not honor you. And so, Father, we we trust you to do your work in and through us as we celebrate this table together. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.